This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 37. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. We are on Session 37 today, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Have on a wonderful guest today for you, Sean McLaughlin from Boston, Mass. A friend of mine that uh, was made through uh, Potluck Audio Con, Tape Op Con. I think we first met around 2004 in New Orleans. And Sean, he's worked with some interesting people. He's worked with uh, Andy Johns, producer Andy Johns, uh, Jimbo Barton, Carmen Rizzo. And as a result of working with those folks, he's got to work with... Uh, Rush, Elliot Smith, Marilyn Manson, uh, Death Row Records, huh? I wonder what, uh, I got to ask him about that. Anyways, um, he lived out in LA for a little bit of time and he returned to Boston uh, in 2004 and he has a studio there called 37 Foot Productions. Some of the people that he's worked with recently or within the last, in his career, we'll say, um, Matchbox 20, Queensryche, Dirty Vegas, uh, Sarah Blacker, uh, Christine Merlin, He's done some work for, you know, some major networks as well. ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, MTV, ESPN. This is kind of cool. In 2013, he was named, he, he had, uh, he was named producer of the year by the New England Music Awards. And in 2014, he did a, uh, an ebook with Isotope called Mixing with Isotope. It's a, uh, a mixing guide for beginner to intermediate mixers. And, uh, he also teaches music production and engineering at Berklee College of Music, as well as audio and media technology at the New England Institute of Art. So be sure to check out his website, 37foot.com. That's 37ft.com. You can uh, do your due diligence and uh, check Sean out. But uh, we have a great, great conversation. You know, I haven't seen him. Um, I missed him this year at uh, Potluck since we didn't have pot Potluck in Arizona. So it was great to have a conversation with him because we typically see each other at least once a year, sit down by, uh, usually it's a, it's a pool at the, uh, Hilton in, uh, Tucson, uh, drinking beers. So this time we had coffee over Skype. It wasn't quite the same thing, but it was, uh, it was good to see him nonetheless. So Sean McLaughlin coming up. Oh, I'm a little hoarse there. <clears throat> uh, well, some good news. We are creeping up on the magic number of 100,000 downloads of the podcast. And of course, the numbers keep increasing each month because each of you seems to be telling somebody else, telling a friend who's telling a friend, et cetera. And therefore, we are, uh, we're definitely getting around. People are downloading the, the podcast in large numbers, and that's, that's really doing wonders for my ego, I got to tell you. <laughs> so, uh, Kudos to all of you. Thank you for uh, taking your time to listen. I always like to thank you, and, and you know how much I appreciate it. You know, I always say so. And, uh, yeah, and, hey, also thanks for the um, wonderful uh, reviews and ratings up there on iTunes. I notice uh, many of you are dropping five-star reviews and saying some nice things. And, you know, my goal is, is to get to the front of the iTunes page. Can, do you think we can do that with an audio, an audio related thing? I don't know. We'll see. There seems to be all kinds of other bullshit out there. Why can't, why can't they put us up there? We'll just see what happens. Let's see. Um, I've updated the, uh, WCA recommends page. So be sure and check that out. Uh, I've added, um, 
two bl- uh, a blog, MrMoneyMustache.com. And basically that is a, uh, this guy, I guess what he did was, is he uh, was able to retire at the age of 30 and he kind of goes into depth about, uh, on his, on this blog about how he did it. And he, he, t- he basically talks about, uh, his tagline, which I love is, uh, um, financial freedom through badassity. And, you know, the guy talks about all kinds of stuff, what, where, you know, how he saves for retirement and how he saves on his cell phone plan and little tiny things like that, you know, tiny things like retirement. Yeah. That's funny. Um, <laughs> the other guy that I uh, mentioned on there is Dave Ramsey. I've talked about Dave Ramsey in the past, and Dave is kind of like, um, you know, I hate to say financial guru. He's just a guy with advice on money, and um, I think he's worth taking a, a listen to. He's got a podcast, and uh, he's got a radio show. He's got a pretty big operation, i got to say. His advice is pretty cool. I'm a big fan of it. There's a little bit of a religious undertone to it, and you can either take that or 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 not, you know, depending on on if you're a religious person or not. I I'm not a religious person, but uh, I'm not bothered by it at all. I think Dave's advice is excellent, and I think uh, it's worth checking out. So make sure and click on there. And uh, yeah, that's it. So make sure to check out the WCA recommends page. All in all, I'm trying to make it so the website is becoming kind of a, I don't know. A recording lifestyle page, a place where you can come to to get uh, good information and uh, some alternative advice about you know what's how to handle your 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 business of recording your uh, recording practices. We'll start to get into a little more gear related stuff, maybe some uh, uh, reviews or something. I'm not really sure how that's all going to take place, but I've got some things in the works that I'm experimenting with that we'll we'll try out. We just want to make it kind of a hub where you can where you can come to and spend some time and check stuff out and learn stuff. You know, it's always good to learn stuff. So that's it. Um, let's get on with our interview with Sean McLaughlin here, here on Working Class Audio. I think you'll really enjoy this. Sean McLaughlin on Working Class Audio podcast. Sean, welcome to the Working Class Audio podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a long time, Matt. You are an, another in a string of, of very cool people, very awesome friends that I have made via Tape Op Con, Potluck Audio Con over the years. And um, unfortunately, we didn't get to see each other this year because of uh, Craig not uh, putting the putting on the great show that he does <laughs> for us um, and the Potluck Con not happening. So this is kind of our, uh, this is our opportunity, although it's, you know, it's about nine forty in the morning for me, <laughs> ten forty or sorry, twelve forty for you. So we're drinking coffee instead of sitting around a pool drinking beers. Yeah, it's it's a much different vibe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long distance one at that. And actually, Matt, I think the first panel I ever did at Tape Op, you were the moderator. When was that? Uh, Two thousand four. Wow. And I think it was you, me, Stuart Carraris, and Ross Hogarth. That's right. And it was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It was pre-Katrina. Very pre-Katrina. Very pre-Katrina. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember that. You were uh you were like, Do you mind if I stand? And I think you were you you were almost like a game show host on this thing. Yeah. It was great. I kind of feel like a game show host sometimes. <laughs> um, I haven't talked to Stuart in a while. Obviously, I've talked with Ross. 
were there any other people on that panel besides us? I think it was just the four of us. Well, uh, it's good to see you. It's good to good to chat with you. I'm I'm excited to have you on the show. So you know we've uh, you've heard the show, and you know we talk we talk finances, we talk business, we we talk gear, and you know let's just because it's staring me in the face over Skype here. <laughs> You're talking into this gorgeous, uh, what's the name of it? it it's uh, a Josephson 715. That's a very nice and expensive microphone. I'm I'm very happy to be the owner of this very nice and expensive microphone. I kind of, <laughs> I have a problem. Luckily, my problem isn't physically debilitating. It's just spending a lot of money on gear. Yeah. Uh, for the first, for the first, I want to say five years of me having a studio open, I said I was going to sink at least 50% of my money right back into gear to improve the gear that I had. I already had a decent gear collection, but now it's it's uh, quite substantial. And hmm. this is one of my favorite vocal mics, and every producer or engineer that's come through here to record has used this either on front of kit or on vocals or as a mono overhead or an acoustic guitar, it works great on a, a lot of sources, but I just love it on vocals. And so you're in Boston. I live in a place called Somerville, which is part of greater Boston. And the studio is about 20 minutes to a half hour south of the city. And the name of the studio is? 37 Foot Productions. When somebody says productions, it always seems like it, it encompasses something that it goes beyond just typical studio booking. So is that true in this case, or does that just happen it's, to be the name and you run a typical commercial studio? It It's sort of that in that case. I mean, when I started this, I took this room over in 2006, and it was from a former teacher of mine named Drew Townsend, who now works for Osberger. And at the time, he went to work with Fletcher. So he had a full-time gig with Fletcher and had a kid on the way, and his wife said, the studio has to go. So... He contacted me knowing that I had just moved back into the city and asked if I wanted a studio. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> because I was smarter then than I am now. But eventually I, I took a look at the numbers and saw that the overhead was going to be low enough to maintain, even though I was back in town and building a client base with, along with some of the clients that I already had maintained when I moved to LA. So I came in and you know, had a tech come in with me and kind of got the place because there wasn't, you know, Drew took a lot of his gear with him. Mm -hmm. And I brought my, you know, at the time two 12 space racks worth of gear and just started recording. I was already freelancing around town at a few different places and had mm -hmm. two full length projects going so that I knew that with those two projects, I could maintain at least some semblance over the next six months to a year of income. So I wasn't going to be sinking. And also those artists could come in here and not pay studio time somewhere else. I could, I could work out a, I'd already worked out an overall project rate with them. So we were kind of evened out and they wouldn't be sinking more money into going to a new place. And, you know, overall it would be better for everybody. Is it, you say room, is it one or is it multiple rooms? Well, it's, it's kind of morphed into uh, control room, live room, video room with an ISO booth lounge and storage space so i went from this little corner of the fifth floor of this old shoe factory into almost the entire floor the video room has just been put together over the past year and a half there's a bit of a story that can go with that so i moved in here in may of 2006 and started developing a client base and approached this with the the idea of 
you know, people being comfortable here and people not necessarily, you know, worrying about everyday things in the city. They were outside the city a little bit. We've got a parking lot. We've got some nice restaurants around here. So they're able to, you know, enjoy a lot of the comforts that they would have, but also just be completely isolated from their, their city life. And a part of that was a big part of that was just, I always find that when artists are comfortable, they perform their best. Some perform better when they're uncomfortable, but you can manufacture that. Um, but but <laughs> there's oh, a plugin for uncomfortable. There, there's there's an uncomfortable plugin. There's a lot we could probably name them. But overall, it's it's about artist comfort. And okay. a lot of the people that I work with are independent artists or bands or solo singer songwriters. And you know, bringing them into a situation like this where they can you know not hear a lot of traffic outside and be able to sit back and relax and have a place to kind of clear their head along with a place where they can just feel free to express whatever they need to express. I think all of those things are really important. So I developed a lot of clients over the past, I guess now it's nine years. And one of those about a year and a half ago was a guy named Steve Smith, who was a singer of a band called Dirty Vegas, which was a a band from London that they, they won Best New Artist Grammy in 2000. They had a big hit called Days Go By back then and have been a big part of the EDM scene. Well, Steve now lives in Situate, Mass., which is about 15 minutes south of where my studio is. Came down for a visit, was really impressed with the gear. We hit it off because we're both, you know, expats of larger music scenes. And he saw the space that I had next door, which I had basically rented just to not have noisy neighbors. Because, uh, Matt, you were a studio owner. You know, it's a lot harder to keep the outside world out of you than it is to keep you out of the outside world. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in my case in San Francisco, it was easy because I, you know, I was in control of a former uh, or a Putnam room. So mm-hmm. it was nobody was going to invade my space. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so you... I was, I was lucky in that case, but my previous incarnation of a studio, I was next door to a, uh, a company that specialized in gaming, get <laughs> sound, for, sound for gaming. So strangely enough, they were doing sound, we were doing sound and our sounds were really driving each other nuts. They, our, our drum sounds versus their explosions. Yeah. I, I'm, I know that idea. So, so I, I had, I had a web designer next to me and, you know, he, he's, he was a loud, boisterous guy who had a lot of conference calls and that was a little <laughs> annoying. Um, he moved to a bigger space and I instantly took over the space that he was in. Steve came in and saw that and had this whole idea of doing, you know, live dirty Vegas acoustic performances in the space. So he really pimped it out. I'll, I'll give you a Skype tour afterwards, but he really, you know, he, he decked it out and in, in you know, all natural wood. So it looks like a log cabin in there. He built an ISO booth and he does a lot of his pre-pro for the band there. He does some voiceover work in there, but they also shoot a lot of acoustic videos over there. Hmm. Uh, so now it's been repurposed into something completely different than what it was before, which was empty space. So I wouldn't have people annoying me. So there's that. And then there's a lounge right across the hall from that. So, you know, we've got, we've got a nice amount of space here. Whenever I talk to you, you seem to mention assistants quite a bit. So you, you have how many assistants? I have two. Uh, yeah. and, and Zach Bloomstein, Steph Derwin, I'm sure you're listening because you're both told me about this thing. They, without them, I would have never known that you were even doing a podcast, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but and you're like, I know this guy. Exactly. Uh, so I was, I was pretty psyched. So Zach and I were, 
you know, we were up here last week and, and listening to Catherine's podcast. And mm-hmm. I think I sent you a text and that's, that's how I'm here. That's how you're here. Cause I was like, Oh, you should be on next week's show. That works. So, uh, Zach and Steph are former students of mine. I teach at the New England Institute of Art. We'll be starting teaching at Berklee College of Music in September, which I guess is next week. So they were students of mine at the New England Institute of Art. And, you know, they they were excellent students. They were like beyond excellent. They were top of the class students. So naturally, I took the chance to snap them up as quickly as I could. Steph, I actually met when she was 16. She came through on a tour and had a brief conversation with her, and I knew there was something special about her right away. So I said, anytime, if you decide to go to school here, anytime you want to intern, just let me know because I'm your guy. Financially, how do you, how do you handle that relationship? That's an excellent question. Um, well, first things first is I have low overhead here because I'm outside the city and because I'm in essentially an old mill building. It used to be a shoe factory. Uh, My overhead's considerably lower than what most people's overhead would be for this same amount of space in a metropolitan area. Okay. Because of that, I I can actually keep my my costs down for clients Mm -hmm. uh, without giving the farm away. And I'm also able to factor in a certain amount to have an assistant here for tracking sessions and for different things. And also those two started off engineering for me when I was, I book a late night from midnight to 10 AM and I, I book it at half the studio rate and I give them half of that rate. Ooh. Yeah. So it's, it's considerably lower than what they pay during the day and they get a good chunk of change that is about twice what they would make assisting for me. So since then They've kind of worked their way through to actually book days in the studio. And I give them a, I try and give them a sweetheart deal as much as sweetheart deal as I can. And then they can actually charge the client whatever they want. Or if I get a client who contacts me, I offer them to work the day for, you know, like 150, maybe $200 less than I would charge for me being here. So they get a certain amount. I have, you know, my studio day rate to cover my nut here and they're able to, you know, make money engineering at Mm -hmm. the ripe old ages of 22 and 23. Oh yeah. Old people. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing to me how mature they both are for the age that they are. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I don't know what to say about that. Um, well, I just think, I think I, I'm sure you remember 21 and 22. I know for me, I wasn't mature enough to have someone hand me the keys to a place and say, go ahead and make a record. I wasn't ready for it. I mean, I look back on that time and I was mature enough to survive, but not, I wish I knew then what I know now, of course. And I meet kids, I say kids, I meet early 20 somethings uh, now that are focused and mature and, and I don't know if that's just better, better parenting or I don't know what it is. I think it's a lot of things. I think, I think parents now are more cognizant of how their kids are growing up in the world. I think their access to anything outside of their immediate periphery is more than we had. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a computer when I was a kid. The amount of access to self-education online, for example. I mean, so if you're an audio um, fanatic and you want to learn about audio, you know, like, for example, uh, I'll, I'll give a plug to our buddy, Warren Hewart. Uh, you know, you can watch Warren's produce like a pro series and, 
you may have never set foot inside a studio, but you can get a pretty good idea of how a patch bay works, how to set up some drum mics. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, that interview was great. He was great. Oh, he's super, super crazy in love with the process of, of, of production and, and audio. And he's, you know, when somebody's so into it, it just really, I mean, we're all really into it, but it just, Warren wears it on his sleeve. Yeah. So it's really great. And also to be able to articulate as well as he does. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us are into it, but there's something about the British accent. It just makes I, it sound I, about 10% classier. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we, we Americans just tend to fumble a little bit more, I think. But, um, so, all right. So you've got this place and, and, and you're, you're running this business and it sounds like, uh, you know, your overhead is low. Is it a safe assumption? Do you have insurance for the business? I do. And you were talking about it last week. I go through, I go through Joe, Joe Monterello. What the hell, man? Why, we all go through Joe. Because he's, he takes care of everybody and it's all through recommendations. I got through Joe through Jeff Lipton of Peerless, Peerless yeah. Mastering who is, goes through peerless insurance. And he swears to me that's not why he recommended it. But Jeff Jeff was like, you need to go through Joe because, and, and the number one factor for me was the fact that he, uh, that they insure for replacement value as opposed to blue book value. Because you have a computer that you bought for five to $6,000 that's fully outfitted with, you know, HDX card or UAD cards. And say someone steals that computer you, the blue book value on, on my Mac pro is going to be, I don't even know what it is now. Two ninety nine and a ham sandwich. No, no ham sandwiches. No, no ham no, sandwich. The, so just, that, that deal's over. Yeah. So, so, you know, I need to get like the black trash can to replace it or to get a, you know, a refurbed version of what I already have. Mm -hmm. And what other insurance company is going to insure for that? This is, this is the only one that I knew about. And when I had a conversation with Joe, he's really in tune with studios because well it actually like every studio that i worked at in la goes through him too mm -hmm. so it turns out that in the small world he's kind of the tree that all the branches come off of when it comes to studio insurance wow wow that was i love that that's for an american you're pretty articulate <laughs> i have to speak part-time yeah <laughs> i should have joe on the show i mean really that would be great yeah, Actually. he could he could really kind of bring some serious information there. So there's another plug for our buddy Joe Monterello. Joe, I hope you are listening. Okay, so you got decent overhead, you got insurance. I assume uh, they your assistants are uh, independent contractors, so they're responsible for their own insurance as as well as uh, tax tax upkeep. They are mm -hmm. okay, which is very common in in our industry. It's pretty rare that. Unless maybe uh, you're at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley or uh, maybe a, a bigger place uh, or a place that's on par with, with Fantasy, would you mm -hmm. get insurance and all that? Now, you, you did do a run with some very kind of pretty high-profile producers, uh, Andy Johns, Carmen Rizzo. You worked with some – you worked with Marilyn Manson? I, I worked on – the, Marilyn Manson had a DVD called Gods and Generals, and I was one of the Pro Tools operators. There were two of us, and Jimbo Barton was the mix engineer. So I was a part of that process along with, with Jimbo. There were a lot of things. There was Russian Rio. There was Matchbox 20. There was uh, Stone Sour, 
Buck Cherry, you know, he does a lot of a lot of rock projects and I was lucky lucky enough to be involved with him. I still work with him to this day. We actually worked on a Matchbox 20 mix that was a live show in Camden, New Jersey that was on AXS TV, I think earlier this summer. So we got to do that via FTP servers and that was really fun. So what was your role in that? He gave me control over all of the vocals. So he we had to do a mix for, you know, an hour and a half show in about three or four days. And he said, can you just fine tune these vocals, lead and background vocals, kind of deal with any automation, any kind of processing that needs to be done, and then send them back to me so I can just pop them right in my mix. Oh, wow. So that was my job. <clears throat> this this actually brings up kind of a, a fascinating um, aspect to people's credits I want to discuss because it pertains to me. Um, I've got a lot of credits for some um, for some artists that are pretty high profile, but you won't find my name on their records. And so some people might look at that and go, oh, he's just padding his resume with bullshit. And that's not true. Um, I, have, talking, I have the same problem, by the way. Well, and and this this Matchbox 20 thing is is a is a case in point. Uh, the Russian Rio thing, well, you probably got credit on that, I bet. I think I'm in the end credits for the DVD. Yeah. Well, well, so I did a, a run at KFOG, uh, the radio station in San Francisco, for a little over a year. That's actually where I met Chuck Smith, who does the intro to the to the working class audio. Oh, cool. Uh, Chuck was my boss at the time, and um, our job was to record acts that came into the station live in front of an audience. So, uh, Florence and the Machine, Thomas Dolby, uh, Imagine Dragons. Can I ask when was the Thomas Dolby one? Oh, I'd have to look. Was it like Aliens Ate My Buick era, Thomas Dolby? No, no, no. no. This was like within the last... Oh, more recent. Like the last several years. Like I'd say like the last three years or something. But it's interesting because there is a line... There there are opportunities of work out there, like what you're talking about, what I'm talking about, where you can work with very high-profile artists in non-record situations and... I want to ask you what your feeling is about like, like if I work with Imagine Dragons and I record, like my job was to record them live into a Pro Tools rig, multi-track it. And I was creating a mix. Get this. It was a Pro Tools 7 HD rig and I was remote controlling it from another computer (laughs) and I was mixing it. I had a mouse and a keyboard and I was mixing it live not to the air, but live to two-track mix, printing the mix within Pro Tools. And then that mix I would then send out to the program director who would put it on the air that afternoon. And, you know, if there was any catastrophes, I could go back and and touch Mm -hmm. up. But rarely there was any catastrophes and it was like, all right, well, just pop the mix out and put it in, you know, this Dropbox. And did you have a redundant system going at the same time? There was was a two-track redundant system. Okay. But... It was dependent on what was going through Pro Tools. So if Pro Tools crashed, you were screwed. We were screwed. Um, we we definitely had one. I will say one and a half, one and a half incidents. But uh, so it was an awkward rig. But anyways, so my job was to do that. So to me, I consider that I worked. You know, I went out there and set up the mics, talked to the band, did sound check, recorded, pumped the mix out. I did the work. So I put it on my website that, yes, I did work with Imagine Dragons. Did I work with them on a record? No. So, well, it's it's similar to me with Andy Johns. Like I assisted for him for one day, you know, I, I, I got up a guitar sound for him 
and he showed me how he liked to have his 421 on whichever speaker on the Marshall. But hey, I worked with Andy Johns. But you worked with him. Yeah. So that that counts. You know, at least in my book it counts. And I don't I don't know how I always feel like I got I think it all depends that. on how you I think it depends on how you list it. You know, it, it, as long as, you, you know, like to me, it makes sense for you to list that you were working for this station and the artists include X, Y, and Z or A through Z. Mm-hmm. You work with the artist. Yeah. I, I had an interesting situation pop up as a result that I had to be, I, I wanted to be super honest about. I had a band contact me and say, we're listening to your mix of this. I can't remember what artist it was of, of such and such artist. And I was like, I didn't mix that. Uh, I think you're referring to the fact that I worked with them at this radio station and that mix, I I would love to take credit for it, but I cannot. And that that would be disingenuous. So they, they replied back and they were like, Oh my gosh, you know, thank you for being honest about that. We, you could have completely taken us for a ride. Yeah. And some people do. Some people do. So I, I don't know. That's, I don't know how prevalent that, that is in, in, in our world. I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, credits are always a tricky situation, I think, because we we our reputation is based on our credits. Our our reputation is based on the artists that we work with. You know, like I know I have I have a friend who does a lot of surround mixing for live concerts. OK. And I know that he has gotten work from some artists because they like the artists that he works with. They like uh. he, they like their records, but he's worked with them in a different situation. And I'm, I'm sure he's clarified that with them, but I don't, I don't know if it matters. People, people want like the magic touch of osmosis that happens from the artists that we work with. Right. Which I think, which I always think is a little bit strange. I would think that, you know, for me, when I choose an artist to work with, it's kind of based on their merits and it's based on the relationship I build from a pre-pro meeting. You know, if, if, if you meet someone and, and you get a sense of what they're looking for and, and you think that you can bring something to the project, then that's the artist that I want to work with. And if that chemistry isn't there, then it's, it's just going to be a long slog of a, of a process that I don't know. I don't know if you'd want to be a part of, but I wouldn't want to be a part of, I don't want to be a part of a process where someone, you know, wants to be working with someone who can give them a different thing than what I give them. What you're saying is, is like, if, if somebody comes to you and I mean, hypothetically, you know, let's say you worked with Led Zeppelin and they say, I want you to make me sound like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And they sound like Harry Nilsson. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the person to, to bring that to them. But then again, you know, like a lot of the clients that I do get, especially the, the unsigned independent artists that aren't affiliated with anybody else. They, they come to me because of records that I've done and they say, we really like the way that record came out. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the type, that's the type of thing that I can bring because I've, I've done it before. It's a proven commodity. I'm not going to say that I can, I can make a band sound like rush because I worked on a DVD for four months. Rush worked on being rush for 40 years. (laughs) <laughs> the band has to work on that part of it. Yeah. I know it's an overused quote nowadays. Uh, I just saw it in a commercial yesterday. I originally, um, I think I heard it uh, from Ross Hogarth was uh, be yourself. Cause everyone else is taking it. It's the, the Oscar Wilde quote. I'm not doing it exactly, but it's, that's, that's my wife's favorite quote. I mean, really it's, it's kind of one of the pitfalls of working with young artists who, 
they are so enamored by others that they haven't quite found their their own voice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that can happen with with us too, as as producers, engineers. We we really might admire, you know, I love Chad Blake. I'm, Me too. I, I say it all the time, but I'm not Chad Blake, and nor should I try to be Chad Blake. No, but I think you know, just like you were saying about artists, we as producers, engineers, mixers, you know, I love Chad Blake too. Uh, I love Michael Brower. I love Andrew Sheps. There, there's a lot of great mixers out there, and some of which we've had the pleasure of, you know, hanging out with and having a great conversation with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and all those guys have had their influences in the past. And all of that kind of comes together as whatever amalgam we end up becoming of the influences that we have. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we, we all do parallel compression, but we all do it differently. And we kind of do it through our own organic and innate understanding of what's happening. But we also do it because we've had conversations with people or read articles or listened to mixes and, you know, researched how someone did a certain thing. All of that kind of comes together to create whatever methodology that we use to get the results that we're looking for. Yeah, sometimes it can be hard because we're just, we're, we're inundated with not only this podcast, Pensado's Place, magazine after magazine. There's a lot of information out there. There's a ton of YouTube videos. And to find your own unique voice as far as being an engineering individual, uh, a recording individual, can be tough. Because and in some cases, we have, you know, just cult of personality with some, some people that we really worship and uh, at the altar of recording. Well, I, I, I think that that's true, but I also like, I don't know if you're a Mad Men fan, but I was a big Mad Men fan. Uh, they always have a conversation in advertising and they talked about it there about being the invisible eye. You've got your artist and your artist's vision and you're trying to do as little as you can to get in the way of that ultimate vision. Right. So I found that I'm more satisfied with my work and I feel like my work has gotten better when I've tried to put as little of my own stamp on things as I possibly can, Hmm. because you're going to do that naturally. Anyway, you're going to choose to use this EQ or this compressor on a particular instrument. That's, that's going to be kind of your quote unquote signature. It's going to be the stamp that you put on it. You don't have to like do the cool little delay trick that you thought of, you know, I'm sure you've done this too, where like I spend hours working on this little, kind of cool thing that happens in a mix and then the artist goes now nah, we don't like that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah but that happens all the time and you have to realize like you know the artist's name is really big on the front of a record and your name is really small on the back and you've got to maintain that sense of proportion to the importance of whose opinion it matters when this when this thing finally gets finished because our opinion doesn't mean anything if the artist doesn't like it or the producer doesn't like it, or the client, whoever's, whoever's giving you the paycheck doesn't like it. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, uh, I'm in the middle of a record now and, and really have respect for the guitar player. Uh, well, I respect the whole band, but the, the, the guitar player has been doing some overdubs at home, and I lent him some mics to do it, and he's been sending me his tracks, and, and they're, everything's great. It's totally fine. But then, and I had sent him stems to do this so he could really kind of figure out what he wanted. And then he sent, he, we, we were talking on the phone and he goes, 
Hey, so, you know, I was telling you, I, I was really enjoying uh, this uh, sound of this bass sound from this song we had discussed from another band. And, and he says, I think I've found a way to get that. Uh, I was taking the, uh, the direct signal and panning it hard right and the mic signal and panning it hard left. And I just said, look, I'm not trying to be a snob here, but personally for me, I, I don't like panning too base signals like that, hard left and hard right. I, I'd prefer to keep it all in the center. And if there's a way to get your sound by doing that, then bravo. But I basically kind of put my foot down and was like, nah, I'm not going to pan the bass hard left and right. Like Did, you're did you about. explain to him why? Kind of, kind of not. I, I always find it works best with an artist if you if you can give a reason behind it, as opposed to saying, you know, we can't we can't get rid of that. Just can't do it. You you go into we can't get rid of that because then all of a sudden like the left right balance gets knocked off and then you've got some phase issues between the amp I, and the di and yeah I did explain the phase thing and, and and but also I just I said aesthetically it just doesn't for the type of band you are it would be like kind of radical to do that and I don't and I feel bad sometimes I think am I like shooting myself on the foot here am I putting off a future client or am I overlooking what could be, I don't know, what could be an interesting concept, but in my heart of hearts, I don't want to pan the bass like yeah. that on this record. It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I have a simple rule for any band that's like arguing over a part or anything like that. I say, guys, you, we can spend 10 minutes arguing over whether it's going to work or we can spend 10 seconds to try it and see if it does. Yeah. And then you just try it and then you get, you know, if you're working with a band, you're dealing with a democracy in a lot of cases, not every case, but the, the democracy is going to kind of tell you which way to go with it. And if the band ends up loving it, you know, for me, I, I kind of feel like it's, it's incumbent on me to try and make it work. I, I think it was uh, Jeff Powell who said, working with uh, Glenn Johns, uh, I think Glenn would say, there'll be plenty of time to hate it later. Yeah. Let's just get it done. Yeah. Or something, something to that effect. No, I like that. I think that's good. You know, and um, there's a teacher at Berkeley uh, named Carl Beatty who always, who always says, if you drive a car to work every day, every decision you make is taking someone's life into your hands. We're just making music. <laughs> so let's just, let's just try it and make a decision. And yeah. I think that's, you know, you have to, you have to commit to something at some point. I'm a big fan of committing as much as I can recording wise. You know, if a guitar player's got a pedal, let's throw the pedal on it. You know, if if, if everyone agrees that that's what the sound is, let's do it. Oh. If you're going to overcompress a room, overcompress the damn room. Just do it. Don't say, well, we'll wait later and we'll see if it works. Try it now and see if it works. Do you know uh, who Mike Stern is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guitar love Mike player? Stern. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I I did this record with uh, this, this uh, local... Uh, sax player who was d doing a solo record and he hired Mike Stern to play guitar on the record. And it was great. We did it all live in the studio. Um, very few overdubs. Anyways, Mike Stern shows up. Everybody's like falling over themselves because Mike Stern's in the room and we set up his rig and he says to me, uh, so Matt, do you want to, I've got this delay set up, this delay pedal. Do you want me to turn it off or, and do you want to just do a plug in after the fact? And I, like my my heart fell into my stomach. I was like, Mike Stern is asking me if I want to do the, the delay setup for his guitar. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'm I'm happy to try it on the plug-in, Mike, but honestly, we should really 
I would defer to you and your setup and what you've got going on. And he was like, well, let's see what you can do. And so I I pulled up this, you know, the stock digi delay plugin. And I was like, this is what I would try, but I just didn't, I didn't sell it at all because I really wanted him to do his (laughs) thing. And I just kind of purposely let it fall by the wayside. And he was like, no, no, no. I, okay. I think you're right. Yeah. Let's, let's go with uh, my my sound. I was like, perfect. That's just do that. That's the right call, I think, because I mean, you're talking about Mike Stern and you're talking about someone who has probably used that pedal, you know, on tour for years and he reacts to it. He's reacting to what he's hearing back coming out of his amp. Yeah. And I think that, again, it comes down to getting a performance. No one really gives a shit about like our cool delay trick. If their Mm -hmm. performance isn't there, the performance has to be there. You have to feel it. And if you're not getting that out of the player, then you've got to switch it up. And to me, it sounds like he's reacting, you know, he, he's got a sound and, and he's going to play according to what that pedal's doing. So right call, let it happen. I I think I may have told, here's another story. And I'm sorry to, to be telling stories over your interview, but no, this is a conversation. It's It's a conversation. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Don't mean to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) To, to find that balance of how to respond to a situation like that. With Mike Stern, I think I was biased by the fact that A, it was Mike Stern, and B, I respected him, and C, I didn't want to screw the situation up. And D, I thought that was the right call. I had another situation with uh, a completely unknown drummer. Uh, this drummer came in, and he, not only was he completely late by over an hour to the session, so I was pissed off that he was late, the other members of the band were pissed off, but he shows up and he's got these hi-hats that are from another era. They are just so thin, but I didn't want to mic the hi-hat. I was like, oh, the hi-hat, that's like water or sand. It gets into everything. Yep. Let's just, that'll be the first track to go. Let's not even what, bother. What is it that Albini says? The hi-hat is the instrument of Satan. <laughs> is that what he says? Yeah. Well, maybe I, I took a little bit of that to heart and I was like, no, man, we're not going to mic the hi-hat. And he's like, are you, are you sure the, you know, my hi-hats are really thin and, and they're not like traditional hi-hats. So you might be missing them in the overheads. And I was like, ah, I, was, I was mad because he was late. And so I, I, you know, in my grouchy way, I was like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Let's get going. Let's get recording now. So we record and you know where this is going. Of course, you couldn't hear the fucking hi-hats. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Not only was I I'm mad at the whole situation, but I was mad at myself for not listening to this guy. And I just was like, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. And I, I had to cop to it. I just said, look, dude, I'm sorry. I, I was irritated that you were late and I just completely blew you off. So you win. Hi hats are going in. Let's do it now. <laughs> that is My one. F- that's one of the toughest things I think is to put your emotion aside when things happen. I think it's kind of our job to be the cooler head to prevail in any situation and to be the logical one, whenever there's a situation, we have to diffuse it. If there's mm-hmm. a situation between band members or whatever. And I think it's, I think that might've been a subconscious thing on your part more than anything. And we've all had it happen. We've all had our emotions get the best of us. It's, it can be hard, man, because you bring, I mean, aside from whatever crap you go, got going on in your own life as, as a recording person, uh, you know, your diet, what's happened at home, uh, your commute to the studio, somebody cutting you off in traffic, et cetera. You bring that and then you bring your passion for what you're doing. And you have to really, it's, you got to really get your, your, your priorities in order. You can't walk into a situation and, and 
let any of that stuff that I just mentioned dictate how the session's going to roll. You got to you got to like be there as hey, I'm here for you. I got your back, artist. Now, let me ask you this. When you go in to do a session at any yeah yeah cuz I know you've been working out of a place in Oakland a lot when you track and things. Do yeah. you how early do you get there not just to include setup but to include like some head clearing space and to kind of <laughs> get yourself mentally prepared for what's about to happen that day? That's a good question. My my wife is uh she does that for her job. She always goes in way earlier so she could sit, have coffee by herself, get her thoughts together and then, you know, get on with the the her, her, her job. Um, I try to get there. I always tell people, you know, if you're going to be there at 11, I generally get there at nine or nine 30 just to turn everything on and sit back and listen to some music through the speakers and just think about, all right, what's my plan? Yeah. What are we you, doing here? You get there a lot earlier than me. <laughs> well, I, I only do that because I, you know, I'm, I'm up at six, six o'clock, six 30 with, with kids anyway. So Yeah. It's kind of built in now to my DNA. Yeah, I've, I've, again, lucking out with great assistance. Whoever has a session the night before a tracking session, we we kind of have an unspoken rule that we'll do a setup for each other if there's if, if there's a chart left out. So if we've got a if we've got a mic plot laid out, then you know the night before, then someone will come in or someone who's here will will just do the setup after the session. So that saves you know that saves an hour or so at least on my part for, you know, for doing a basic session, I don't, well, I just come in and make sure that they plugged everything in the way I wanted to. And, you know, then I'm, then I'm able to kind of mentally prepare for what the day is. Well, now this brings up something that uh, I want to mention is that like, for example, I, the studio you said in Oakland is Shark Bite Studios, which I absolutely love. It's, it's, it's affordable for the artist. It's a great place to work from an infrastructure standpoint. Ryan, uh, at Shark Bite is totally on top of it. Um, it, but it's it's a self-sufficient type place where you as the engineer, it's it's your gig. There's no there's no hand holding, there's no extra, you know, uh it's it's not like what uh, I don't know what the uh, equivalent uh in another business would be. It's like you're on your own and the price fits that aesthetic, that model, you know, it's like it's two fifty a day for outside engineers to come in which for what it is, is fantastic. But, you know, there's no assistance. There's no extra anything. You, Mm. you are there on your own. If you get into trouble, obviously you can call, call Ryan and he'll bail you out. But, but if you go to say 25th street studios in Oakland, or you go to, um, studio trilogy in San Francisco, or you go to, I haven't, I haven't done any work at fantasy, so I'm not sure how they operate. But so like, if I go to work at studio trilogy, I can send in a mic plot ahead of time and somebody will set it up. And so like, if I show up at nine o'clock in the morning, all my stuff's already set up and routed and plugged in and labeled. And they do the same thing at 25th street. And, but you pay for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're going to pay more money for that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a family here, so we don't, we don't really do that kind of thing. Um, Well, and you don't, you probably, you, do you host outside engineers very much? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it depends, you know, it's, those rates aren't far off from, from where I am, but I always, I always put in like an extra hundred bucks for an assistant. Uh, so any outside engineer that comes through here has to have one of those two here with them mm-hmm. because they know the flow of the room. The, the room is, 
it's not quirky, but I've got certain things set up for the workflow that I want to have. And that doesn't mean it's going to suit everybody else. All of my, everything on the mic bay is normal to a preamp and every preamp's normal to a Pro Tools input. So, you know, if they want to patch into um, a Neve 1272, they have to patch into 13 or 14, or they could just patch out of the normal if they want, but I've got everything kind of set where all the pre's are normal to a mic input. So it's really easy to, you know, have some minimal patching and get sounds up really quick. I want to uh, jump topics for a bit. So you did this mixing with Isotope. So obviously you have a, um, a relationship with Isotope. They're located there, right? They're in uh, Cambridge. They're okay. They're about ten minutes from my house. And full disclosure, I I am an Isotope artist. I'm on their website, and uh, I use their products, and and they've treated me very well. Where can we get this? This is this a this is a proper book. This is a a book in PDF form that's free on the Isotope website, Isotope.com. Okay. So, okay. Uh, it's an ebook. It's an ebook, and okay. it it all came about through. Um, well, I I won the Producer of the Year Award through the New England Music Awards, and this artist that I work with named Sarah Blacker um, had done some demos for Nectar through them, which is their vocal channel strip processor. Right. Um, and Nectar 2 was about to launch, and they contacted her about working with her and I as a team and doing a video video of that. So... We booked a day. They came in with a product manager and some video people, shot a really nice video of a room that now looks completely different than it did two years ago. You know, they, they used one of Sarah's songs that I had produced and mixed in the video, and she re-sang it for, you know, for Nectar purposes. And they now use it in the kiosks whenever they do trade shows. So they're actually using one of her tracks there. So from that, the, uh, the product manager who was here, his name is Matt Hines, was doing a, a local student convention where they were doing product demos and everything. And he asked me to sit in. So we sat in and talked about how to deconstruct a mix and how to use isotope alloy, isotope trash, isotope nectar to kind of do processing on a mix. And he went back to his bosses and said, we need to get this guy in here somehow. And we're, I was lucky enough to, uh, I shouldn't say lucky enough. I was I have a lot of former students that are now working for Isotope. There are about a half dozen over there, and they're all spectacular. They were great students, but they're they're they've grown into just spectacular product engineers, quality control people. Uh, it's quite a large company now. There are over a hundred employees, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty large for you know a plug-in company essentially. Um, which makes me think what what do they have. What do, what do they have up up their sleeve right now? You know, I don't even have anything under an NDA that I could speak about. Uh, me either. Uh, but they they they've got a lot of employees and they've got an enormous space in a very expensive part of town. So they're they're obviously doing something right. So so from all that, they um, Matt had talked to me about doing a mixing guide the way they had done a mastering guide for Ozone. Okay. So Matt became my editor. You know, I put together an outline, sent him an outline. We worked together. You know, essentially, I've never written a book before, so I don't know if it's the way that, you know, people normally put these type of manuals together. But we we had a lot of fun working on it together, and it looks like uh, there may be an addition to in the future. Uh-huh. So so it was uh, it was a great project to do, you know, just talking about the things that we get to do, and, and it's gotten an amazing response. So Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
Let's, I want to talk about a completely different topic for a second, and that is alternative audio jobs. Let's say, uh, let's say you're a recording engineer, you have a studio, that studio hasn't been doing very well, and it's time to start rethinking how you're going to make a living because maybe you have a child on the way, maybe you're just not doing it like you should be doing it financially and it's just not working out. So you close your studio and and instead of seeking a job outside of the audio world, you know, there's a lot of talented audio people out there that just aren't maybe the smartest business people. So there's obviously these possibilities that, you know, like you said, you have students who work for Isotope. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on working for, you know, manufacturers, working for other audio related situations like you have students you've you mm-hmm. you've taught for a long time so what's what do you what do you tell people this is uh it i have the same conversation with musicians nowadays because no one is making money solely off of record sales mm-hmm. or or even touring nowadays you've got to find ways to to branch out as a musician i think if you want to get into doing studio work for a living first off Get that out of your head because that's ridiculous. We, we we were insane to do this in the first place. It's it's uh, there are long hours and sometimes it's a thankless job. And am I allowed to swear on this? Sure. You you, you have to eat shit a lot for yeah. your first you know however many years. And if you're not in New York, L.A., Nashville, London, you know places where there there's an infrastructure for some kind of industry, it's a lot harder to make a living. You know, right. I would say that like. The Bay Area, Boston, Minneapolis, Austin, Texas, Seattle, those are kind of secondary markets, all things considered. So, yeah, you know, you've got to find ways to to supplement or have the studio at first supplement what you're doing. My assistant, Zach, does a lot of live sound gigs, you know, where he's doing he's doing monitors for larger acts. I think last week he worked with the Bodines on a thing and he was doing monitors for them. He's he's done. uh you know, stuff with The Roots, with Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, you know, he's, he's worked with a bunch of artists uh, just doing that, just, you know, being in a situation, working with one band that has a front of house guy. And he, I, I think he's better at understanding client care now. I think he's better at understanding what people need to hear in their monitors when they're listening. And a lot of them have in-ears. So, you know, for him, it's a lot easier than it was dealing with monitors and feedback and all that type of thing. Um my other assistant, Steph, is now one of the staff members at Berkeley Studio Operations. So she's doing that part-time and engineering part-time. She also works with another local engineer named Benny Grotto, who, who Benny and I have co-produced a few things together. And, and you, you know, you find kindred spirits in whatever area you're in. I believe, mm-hmm. I believe at the last potluck, you talked about having an ecosystem. Yep. And I, I talk think, about ecosystem a lot. I think that, like, I really took that to heart because that's kind of how I've always felt you have to treat whatever situation you're in, especially in these kind of smaller markets that we're in. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have to think about that type, of, that type of thing. And I think these, the younger engineers that I'm working with are trying to do exactly that type of thing where they're, they're trying to reach out in as many different ways as possible. You know, some have gone in to be reps. Some have gone to... You know, like like I said, I have quite a few over at Isotope. I've got a few students who worked over at Harmonics when you know Rock Band was a big thing and Guitar Hero was a big thing. You know, th- there there are a lot of options. I think you know it's not just working in a studio. 
live gigs, corporate AV gigs, as mindless as they might be. There, there are a few production companies in town where, you know, I've got students who are, you know, at first they're working as stagehands and then, you know, moving forward, working at like Fenway Park, putting together the concerts that come through there. Um, there's, there is audio for TV. There's audio for sports, you know, and especially in a town like this where it's a big sports town. That's a, that's a thing. I think there are a lot of options and I think it's good to not close your mind to any of them because you never know what's going to come down the pike. You, you've just got to, you've just got to maintain an open mind and work hard and people are going to notice that you're working hard. And also you don't know, this is one of the problems with going to college in your late teens and early twenties. You don't know the type of person you're going to be at 25, never mind 30 or 40. So you don't know what needs you need outside of work. Are you going to be a family person? Are you going to, are you going to be, you know, a swing and single for, a, you know, a majority of that time? Do you, are you a partier? Well, if you're a partier, you got to slow that down a little bit anyway, because you're going to be working hard. You don't know what your comfort level is. Do you really want to drive a nice car or do you mind driving a beat up Toyota? Yeah. These, these are things that you have to think about as far as lifestyle choice to go along with the, the work that you want to do. Because I think to be in a studio, you have to want to do nothing else for a long period of time, because that's what's going to happen. It's so hard to see the future, obviously. Well, it's, none of us can. If we can have a glimpse of all of these things that you talked about. We might say, well, of course I want to drive a nice car. Of course I love to party. Of course I, you know, but mm -hmm. we, we really don't know. So for the student, and we have a ton of students that listen to the show, it's, I think it's, I want to just hammer the point home that it's really important to build up your skill set. And as Warren Hewitt said in, in our last show, Warren said, you know, so what you, that, you know, pro tools, or, you know, a particular DAW, that's a given. You have mm -hmm. to know that because if you don't, you're screwed. He's right. He's a spe I, I mean, there were a lot of things in that, that, that really, that really resonated, I thought, but th I think that statement is, is completely true. You have to know your DAW, but that's a part of it. I mean, just, you think about the evolution of what we do for a living. And 10 years ago, did you think you would have to know as much about computers as you do now? Because I no. didn't. No. You know, I mean, well, now it's more like 15 years ago because time's flying. But uh. Uh, but, but there, there are things and skill sets that we have now as audio engineers that our predecessors didn't need to have because it wasn't a part of... A computer wasn't even a part of a studio necessarily 20 years ago. You know, some studios I worked at had Sound Designer too. And that, you know, that was their two track editor. Yeah. But most, most places you were in either had like an Otari or a Studer or something along those lines where your editor was a razor blade and a piece of tape. And how many kids nowadays know how to do any tape editing? Not, not many because they don't need to. Well, I was just going to say, you mentioned Steve Albini earlier. I mean, um, some people might, you know, defiantly say, well, I'm going to be like Steve Albini. I'm just going to do tape. Well, back to the Oscar Wilde quote, there's only one Steve Albini. Mm -hmm. You know what? And uh, here in the Bay Area, you know, uh, our friend John Vanderslice, John sticks to his guns on, on tape. That's fine. But there's... But there, you're, there are two things that are a part of that. They were both part of a time when that was the way to record in a studio. And they were also part of a time when the financial infrastructure of even independent music was so much different than it is now. That's true. And, and I, that's a factor that you can't rule out. I mean, we're talking about everybody's got some kind of a DAW in their basement nowadays and has varying levels of competency and proficiency in it. So if you're going to be the guy who says, I'm only going to do tape, 
well, if you're 20 years old, how do you know what the benefits of anything are? You haven't explored anything to the extent that you really can. Mm-hmm. At the age of 20, there, there, aren't, there aren't any kids at the age of 20 that have explored whatever DAW they're in as much as they think they have. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you know? And, and I mean, Steve Albini has made a career out of his ways of working and, and he's far past the point of, I mean, I can't imagine a day that Steve Albini would say, you know what, guys, I've been wrong. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I bought a Pro Tools rig and I'm into it. It's awesome. I'm going to cut and paste till, till the cows come home. Um, that's not going to happen. I just, I can't see that happening. But he's also, <clears throat> you're right. He's also established himself as that guy. He is and that that's, guy. And that's been happening with him for his entire existence. He, he didn't just start off saying, I'm going to only use this, that, and this piece of gear. He got to that through trying a bunch of things. And saying, yeah. this is what, this is where I ended up. You mm-hmm. don't make that decision at 20 when you haven't done anything. You make that decision at 35 when you've tried as many things as you possibly can. Right. And, and I've said this before, do, nothing drives me more nuts than somebody who's got more opinions than experience. Yeah. That's a, that's a good line. I always, with my students, I always use the line, how are you going to learn if you know everything already? Yeah. Yeah. If, if you know everything already, then give up. Yeah. It's, that's that's kind of where the, the tough thing is. You have to be open to just about everything. I, I mean, it's a whole Zen mind, beginner's mind thing. You need to, I try and stay as open to any idea that I possibly can, no matter how stupid I might think it is at the beginning. It, it more often than not shows merit later yeah. on. Hey, I want to give a mention to our uh, friends at Sonarworks. And uh, have you, have you checked this software out? Not at all. You'll hear me mention it on previous shows. Basically it's a, uh, it's a piece of software. It's a, it's a plugin that comes with a, um, a, a room shooting, a room measurement component. You load the load this software on your machine, and then you uh, take a measurement mic and you follow the directions in the software, and it tells you, you know, move the mic here, move the mic here. And through a series of uh, blips and beeps and um, uh, sine, sine wave sweeps from, you know, 20 to 20, it measures your room, and then it comes up with a response of your room based on what it's listened to. And then it takes that response and it injects it into a plugin, which you put on the back end of your, your DAW so that you're, instead of monitoring through a, um, a system that maybe has a big peak at 400 and a big dip at, you know, uh, I don't know, one, one K or whatever, what, whatever it is. Cause you don't need those frequencies. Cause you, right, <laughs> right. So what it does is, is it creates a, it, it flattens out uh, the response in your system so that you're mixing more through uh, a flat response setup. It's pretty interesting. And I, I thought my room had a couple anomalies, but I measured my room and it has loads of anomalies. So I, uh, I got the software, I tested it out, I borrowed a, a measurement mic, ran it through its paces and then started doing mixes, and my mixes came together a lot quicker, and they sounded, they translated better to everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you if you haven't tried it, you should check it out. We I, we have a code uh, WCA works, which will give you. Uh, there's a limited amount of them, and we're working on a, a on a longer term uh, percentage off with uh, SonarWorks. But go to SonarWorks.com, and you can use that code to get. Ten, uh, I think it's thirty three dollars or thirty three euros off of whatever price of the bundle you buy and it uh they have a mac and a pc version and it's it's great it's you should check it out sean really cool yeah i I mean 
when you're when you're mixing when you're listening back to anything you can't work if you don't know what you're listening to it's it's almost like trying to drive with you know not being able to see the color green you know if 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 you're doing that how are you going to know the lights turning green <laughs> you know it's the same thing with this if if you have anomalies in your room or you have a null point or you have a big peak or dip anywhere you're going to be dealing with issues that you're not even going to know what the issues are because you don't know what your room is doing to your speakers. Well, here's an even better deal. If you sign up on the uh, uh, Working Class Audio website uh, I, and you become a subscriber, I can send an even better deal for that software. I just can't say what it is. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So very there nice. You go. So that's, that's my plug for Sonarworks. They're awesome. And uh, I love the software and I wouldn't mention it if I didn't. So uh, there it is. So we were talking about alternative jobs and alternative ways of doing things uh, if you're up and coming and building up experience because it can be beneficial to build up a wealth of experience if you've, you know, let's say you've worked at, uh, you've got some experience working at a plug-in manufacturer or a microphone manufacturer. Uh, You can really kind of find out a little bit more about your own work habits by working for somebody else Mm -hmm. before you work for yourself. That's really true. And a lot of those places have, if you're working at a plug-in manufacturer or anything like that, a lot of those places have mix rooms there. So you can actually hone some of your chops. Like I know Isotope has one or two mix rooms that the employees are allowed to go in and try out different things and also try out, I don't want to say competitors' plugins, but other third-party plugins and, you know, just find out like, what's working, what isn't working, and find out different features about things that you normally wouldn't have access to. Mm-hmm. So do it. Yeah, it, it, it can also, I think working for somebody else can give you a, a strong sense of, uh, you know, if it's a successful company, you know, like a, an Isotope or Universal Audio, it'll give you a sense of business, of, of how, how does a business run? If you're mm-hmm. going to run your own business, you know, it's like, uh, I know it's a, a overused example, but, you know, many chefs, many great chefs think it's a good idea to open a restaurant when, Mm -hmm. in fact, many of them know nothing about running a restaurant, nothing about business. And they jump in and end up in some case, many cases failing. And when, in fact, it would have been better for them to just be, uh, hone their skills being a chef and go to work for, uh, a nice restaurant that features their menu. Yeah. And yeah. do you, do you recommend any like reading or you know financial instruction for any musicians or or well, yeah, engineers? I mean, I, I mean, on the website, I do. That's for sure. It's we ha- we have a thing called WCA recommends. I don't know if you've seen that, but um, I, I there I highlight books that I've read that I really enjoy. I mentioned uh, Michael Beinhorn's book is on there. Glenn Johns's book, Fan- Jeff Emmerich, Bo- all three fantastic books. Those are all amazing books. I'm in the uh, middle of the Beinhorn book right now and it's, and it's great. Oh, good. And, and Zen and the art of mixing from mixer man. Mm-hmm. I, I read that. Um, but then I also recommend, uh, mint.com for, uh, just managing your, your personal finances, just to keep an eye on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren, Warren's, uh, uh, produced like a pro video series is highlighted there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a slow building list of recommendations that I think students for sure should look at and pros should, you know, if you're looking to really, you know, I I don't know how you, how you deal, Sean, but I like to always be improving 
the systems around me, the things I'm doing, how I do things, and how I did things five years ago uh, varies greatly from how I do stuff now. And that could be anywhere from how I set up a mix in Pro Tools to how I manage my money or how, uh, you know, the, the, how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. So that list is kind of uh, reflects a lot of those philosophies. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm the same way. It's like a combination of personal and professional growth. Um, a book that I would recommend is yeah. uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's uh, it's finances explained to a nine year old. So it really anyone who's you know going to be listening to this podcast, it really breaks things down into their simplest form and talks about how to just how to deal with finances overall. I mean, he's really talking about making a lot of money, but you know, if you can break the fundamentals down to dealing with your own finances. Yeah. And that, that book kind of primarily, doesn't it deal with mostly real estate? He's, he's a real estate guy, but he deals, he breaks it down to just assets and liabilities and understanding when you buy something, what it goes into. Like when you have a car payment, your car is a liability until it's paid off, Mm. which, you know, and, and money is kind of measured in, um, it's wealth is measured in money over time. So it's, if you were to stop working today, how long could you live at your current lifestyle before your money ran out? Oh, not very long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if I if I stopped working today and sold my gear, it, it'd probably be a lot longer. But I, I'm I'm in a similar boat. Um, but but I think the idea of you know the idea of understanding a basic business sense from a personal standpoint is so important before opening your own studio because mm-hmm. that's when everything starts to fall apart because there are so many I believe you talked about it in the past there are so many expenses that you don't think of like cables and mic stands and insurance and, and insurance and an alarm and um repairs when gear breaks <sighs> maintenance so that gear doesn't break um I mean, it's it's a pretty long list. It is, and you know, for some listening to the podcast, I know it's easy to many of many of l- the listeners may be rolling their eyes, going, "Oh man, I don't want to listen to a podcast about money and business. I want to hear about recording techniques." And this isn't exactly the podcast for that because <laughs> we, we, what we're trying to do is make sure that uh, you know those of you that are engineering out there stay engineering and do it in a smart way, and and money is part of it. Um, you know, one thing I, I got to add to the WCA recommends list is uh, is a guy named Dave Ramsey, uh, and I'm reminded because I just saw him on uh, CNN a few days ago talking about uh, the whole Chinese uh, stock market collapse and talking about you know how people should react to to that or should not react. One of the things that he talks about that I love is he says, you know, obviously you got to pay off your debts. That's super important, but having a uh, an emergency fund is critical. And if you're a studio owner, that's super critical because you don't want to use a credit card as your emergency fund. You want you want to have a cash reserve of at least $1000. It's inevitably going to happen. You you know, you, I I did it. I, I I set up that that emergency fund and shortly after, like swear to God, like four months afterwards, all the tires on my car needed to be replaced. And I was low on funds. I was like, I don't want to charge this. But then I was like, oh, wait a minute. I have a thousand dollars in the emergency fund. Yeah. I'll pay for the tires with that. You and know, boom. Dave Ramsey talks about um you have to think about yourself as you incorporated. So in other words, if you were the CEO of you incorporated, would you fire you? 
That's a good, good point. So he, he talks about that type of thing all the time. And, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way. I'm a fan of extremely smart people who are good at their job. And Dave Ramsey at, is at the top of that list. Yeah. Um, it's, it's in, this is, you're right. This is not the sexy part of the job. But if you're talking about opening a studio, it's an essential part of the job because how many studios open that close within a year? And it's because they don't have this. They just think, I'm just going to do the fun, sexy part, which is throw up mics and record people and then not think twice about, you know, what your overhead is going to be and how much money you're going to need outside of that. Mm -hmm. These are really important things. You know, it's because I think that at, at our heart, and many of us are musicians, and I think uh, artistic artistic people at their core, which we are, we uh, we're impetuous. We mm-hmm. uh, we just hey, you let's put on a show. Hey, my dad's got a barn. I've got some costumes. Let's throw it all together. You know, we we usually go into these things where you know we think we can just toss it together and and it'll all kind of come together, but. And maybe for a small percentage of you out there, that's the case. But, and I don't know about you, Sean, but I've learned that if you're going to do something, you have to think of all the variables around it. It's like when you're doing your your ebook with Isotope, you guys did an outline. You had to figure out what you were going to write about. You didn't just sit down and go, okay, mixing. Hmm. Exactly. But But it's the same with doing a record if you do proper pre-production. Again, they talk about it in the Beinhorn book. If you do proper pre-production, you're not going to be surprised at anything that comes at you from a different direction. You know where things need to go before you even hit record the, on the first day. And that type of thing is, if that type of thing is important to you, then the rest of this has to be too, because all of it is tied together. And it's it's interesting too, because if you're just like a, a studio owner that takes the cold call. Hey, we want to book some time. We want to come in and record. That's if you're just going to take that call and let them come in and hope for the best. um, Sometimes the results can be disappointing because they weren't prepared and, and you took the position of not digging in and going, well, cool. What are you going to do? What, you know, how can, how, how can I help? Have you thought of this? Have you planned this? You know, and some people don't want to get involved. Some people take a very hands-off approach and just say, okay, well, you know, it's whatever you want and time is money. So you need another day. I need some more money. Well, that, I mean, and that comes down to, that comes down to the shop. I think, you know, there are some studios that are just studios and you know, you, you're essentially booking time. You're booking a room, the room gets staffed, the artist comes in, they have eight, 10, 12 hours, a full day lockout, a week lockout, whatever. And they get done in that time, what they want to get done. Hopefully, Mm -hmm. hopefully, usually not. Um, when people call me or Zach or Steph to book time here, the conversation always happens. So what's the goal? Can I hear some demos ahead of time? It's really important to hear what a band sounds like live in a room. Mm -hmm. I hate getting pre-pro demos that are like done up pre-pro demos because I want to know if the drummer can play in time. And the singer can play in tune and the guitar player knows how to tune his guitar. Never mind, like play like ahead or behind the beat. But these, these are, these are all factors that go into anybody that comes through here. I, I want to have the conversation ahead of time because I want to know, I want to know it can be reasonably expected to get done in the amount of time that they're going to book. 
And I want to be able to tell them that. And I'm going to be honest with them. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's a big rule here for me is if you're in this room, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be nice, but I'm going to be honest. And I'm going to say, maybe you should think about, you know, doing fewer songs or taking more time or maybe booking in a month or so after we get a chance to really go through these and, and hash out some, you know, some, some things that you all might have some disagreements on. I, everyone wants to get in the studio as soon as possible, but right. not, but not everyone wants to be prepared to get in the studio as soon as possible. They just want to come in and hit record and let magic happen. It's just like, you know, I live in a town that has a lot of uh, kids and a lot of young people in it. So consequently, there are a lot of new drivers on the road who don't have a lot of experience and they think it's okay to, you know, tailgate you in a 25 mile per hour school zone at, you know, trying to get you to go 60 miles an hour. And when it comes Matt, to... Rec- I live in Boston, the, one of the biggest college towns in America. The amount of accidents that I see with 18-year-olds driving U-Hauls would blow your mind <laughs> on major roads. And and other people are trying to get home from work, and all these kids want to do is get their couch up to their dorm room. And they, you know, do whatever crazy thing that they're doing on the road, and all of a sudden you know, someone rear ends someone else and traffic is backed up for 45 minutes. Well, how many studio accidents do you encounter where, you know, a young inexperienced band comes in and they have, they saw a movie or have very little, you know, they have, they saw a movie about recording or they saw a documentary or maybe they saw, I don't know, some hyped up version of what they think it's going to be. And they walk in and they're not prepared they're not prepared for what they're experiencing and they've never heard themselves. And it's, but you know, yeah, the movie leaves out the five to six years of hard work that the artist put into before they showed them in the studio. Yeah. (laughs) That's the tough part is, is, you know, it, it is fun. It's a blast to be in the studio. For me, it's the greatest thing in the world. There's no place that I would rather be, but you know, I, you, I'm sure you were the same way. You, you grew up as an assistant. You no, assi- you didn't. You didn't no. assist. No, I, I assisted. I assisted for probably longer than I should have. I it's the main reason I moved to L.A. was to work with other producers and get a sense of what they do and, you know, kind of, you know, learn it, quote unquote, the right way, because there is no real right way. That's probably the biggest lesson that I learned through all the, of it. That, that's what Warren Hewitt and I bonded over is that neither of us came up through the studio system. We both dropped in from the top like jumping out of helicopters right in going did okay you, I'm, did you I'm, come in as a musician first i did i um i was i had a little bit of recording experience and uh around 1994 i had a band that i knew approach me and say we want you to produce our record and i knew how to you know i had been a musician working in in bands in the days of big budgets and knew how that process worked i just didn't have all my techniques down and um uh, definitely made a first record where <laughs> the compression was a little abused. I, I made about 500 of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, that, that's another thing too, is, is that speaks to the idea of that. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. There's always something to learn. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, I, I can't like my wife comes home from her job and You know, the last thing she wants to do is start reading a book about her job or dealing with any, (laughs) she wants to kick back and have a glass of wine, watch a show, read a book. But 
about something completely different. Whereas I, and I think many of us are like this and I bet you are too. You do a session and it wouldn't, you wouldn't even think twice about coming home and, oh, the new Mix Magazine or the new Sound on Sounds here, the new Tape Ops here. I want to check this out. Or we wouldn't mind, you know, watching a video about, uh, you know, how, you know, how to, how to do something in the studio that you've never heard of before. Yeah. It's, it's a different job all the time. It's like musicians are the same way. I think, I think anyone who's in like a media field there, there is a glamor to it. Of course there is. It's what drew us to it in the first place. So we just want to keep absorbing all of it. The only difference for me is my drive home. I can't listen to music. Yeah. I tend to, uh, I tend to either put on NPR or nothing at all. I, I, I listen to podcasts. If I'm oh. listen, if I'm listening to something, I know yeah. a great podcast for you to listen to. <laughs> Actually, that's what happened last week. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it was the uh, I think it was the Joe Barisi episode. Joe's such a great dude and really great information. Just he's so down to earth. He's so yeah. Like I don't know. I, I think I think very highly of him. Oh, he's the man. Let me ask you this: What do you think is important in a website for a recording individual? What? Uh, in the day, in now that we live in an age of Facebook and Twitter, yeah. what would you say is important? That's an excellent question. I I don't know because I talk to some people who swear that they haven't gotten any work off of their website at all, mm-hmm. and I talk to other people that are just so on top of getting updates and and you know blogging twice a day and it blogging blogging to me feels like work that I don't want to do. <laughs> I was blogging more in the beginning of working class audio. I did a few blog posts and then I just kind of stopped because it was just easier to do the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I forget to take shots at some sessions, especially ones that are a little more involved because there's so much, there's so many moving parts, but you know, if I'm say doing a drum session on a thing and I've got what looks to be like a beautiful mic setup, I'm going to take a fo- you know, I'm going to take a photo of the coals hanging out right in front of the kit I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a photo of any kind of weird setup that I have. Like if I have a PV, PVC pipe, back to Chad Blake. If I have a P, PVC pipe pointing down at you know the drum kit from above, I want to, I want to see those things. When people want to f- work with somebody, they typically, I think, will Google them, and they'll see like, okay, well, what, what's this person's story? And of course, you know, the website's going to come up, so. They obviously want to hear something that you've done. Mm-hmm. So just, and they want to see who you've worked with. So, you know, maybe whether it's uh, SoundCloud clips or links to iTunes or Spotify or yeah. YouTube or whatever. Yeah. I have a SoundCloud mix reel up, you know, and, and that's got, I don't know, 10 to 15 different songs that I've worked on in one capacity or another. Um, and that link, I believe, is on my believe it's on my website certainly hope it's on my website if not i'm going to do some updating as soon as we get done with this but you know a lot of things you know pop up you know the website for me might be the first thing but then there's also you know other artists websites a lot of artists you know a lot of artists are more on top of doing that type of update in studio while i'm doing you know some actual engineering work they'll be sitting in the back and updating the website and updating their own websites and everything. The girl I work with, Sarah Blacker, I mean, I've done now five records with her, uh, and she just got picked up by Universal. And part of the reason is, is because she is a social media monster. She is 
amazing at it. And she's always saying stuff about me. She's probably said more nice things about me than I than you than said I've about had about you. myself. Yeah. So it having well, so, having artists like that is you know pretty invaluable for this type of thing because I I think I I'm sure you feel the same way. Like one of the one of the main ways that I get not just local but national clients, especially with touring artists, is word of mouth. You know, yeah. and, and a lot of my a lot of my out of town mix work either comes from an artist that I've worked with locally that's toured there or, you know, not necessarily from the website, but just, you know, Googling an artist and, and, you know, hearing something on whatever streaming media that they're on and they're looking me up. Um, I do get, I do get contacted still from the site. So it's obviously doing something. I think it's important to have a website in general mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, People hear about you. They want to check you out. It, it is a way to kind of verify outside of Facebook and Twitter, like, what is this person about? And I think for engineers, I think it's important to kind of just maybe have an about page, have a discography of who you've worked with, and most importantly, have a way to get in touch, um, you know, and maybe a way to kind of field the, the crazies out there is to maybe not put a phone number, but maybe just put an email contact form. Mm -hmm. um, all of that stuff is up there. All of that's okay. up there. That, that when I say I haven't updated, uh, I've acquired some gear over the past year that might not be on the list. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's important? I mean, like if I'm a if I'm a an artist and I want to come work with you, do you think like listing out your gear is important? Sometimes uh, it depends on how gear savvy the artist is or cares to be. In some cases, it's it's helped knowing that like, you know, I've got I've got Neve gear here, or you know, I'm running, I'm running HDX or Burl Mothership, you know, those type of things, you know. You have a Burl Mothership, yeah, you bastard. I'm I'm that guy. This You're is that guy. When it, when when you get to the gear question, I'm going to answer it very poorly because there's a lot of gear here that that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> No judgment. Well, no judgment. You know, I, I, I drive, I drive, like I said earlier, a beat up Toyota. So my money's got to go somewhere and I'd rather have it go here. <laughs> well, um, I think, you know, just back to the website thing for a second. My, um, uh, I think my downfall is, is I'm spending too much money per month on my website. Uh, not necessarily working class audio, but mattboudreau.com. I think I need to uh, find a cheaper web host and I need to kind of pare it down to what's important because sometimes I think people like they put too much stock in the website mm -hmm. and they just, they, they hire a web designer and web designers are like contractors for homes. They're like, uh, they can be ridiculously expensive. And then when you need something, you can't find them or, Hey, I need to make an update. And then it's impossible. Yeah. Who's your host? Uh, my host right now is uh, Squarespace. Okay. And, you know, it's a little expensive, I think, for what it is. Okay. I think I, 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 that's, that's who hosts mattboudreau.com. Bluehost is who I do for um, working class audio. And I pay yearly for that. That's about... I think I pay like 90 bucks a year for that. That's that's not what Squarespace is? What does Squarespace go for? Squarespace is like 20 bucks a month. Oh man, that's pricey. It is yeah. pricey. I think I'm going to switch to Bluehost because it's just better. I'll put a link on 
on WC recommends because I Bluehost has been simple to deal with. Squarespace is fine. They just it's it's kind of personally I think they're kind of uh, overpriced. Okay, for what they're doing, mm-hmm. maybe I maybe I could adopt a lesser plan and kind of keep things simple. But how does uh how does the Bluehost um how does that hosting translate to tablets and mobile? Oh, it's layout. It's look great. great. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> how does how does working class audio look on a on a phone? Let's, let's find out. I don't know. <laughs> um, I know that Squarespace tends to to work on mobile, and you know, mobile isn't a huge. Um, people don't look at working class audio on mobile as much as I think they would, but uh, I could tell you that. MattBoudreau.com on mobile looks okay. Mm-hmm. That's I will say that about Squarespace. Is it looks pretty good on mobile. I can tell you that for sure. Um, but I think that what's important is, is that, you know, don't put out too much money for, for a website. Um, maybe link to your Facebook account, your LinkedIn account. You know, I'm, this is me telling you yeah. if you're going to update. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I, I really only have a studio site with me on there. It's just 37foot.com. Um, mm-hmm. But I bought the domain name. I, I went to look for my name. You're lucky that you got your name. Because my name, if I was to buy it off the person who owns it, he was, he was looking for 1700 bucks. So uh, I decided Yeah, I decided to go with theseanmclaughlin.com. Oh, there you go. Screw that guy. You know what I did? <laughs> I, I, I bought, I, this is completely not related to any of, this podcast, but I bought my, uh, my kids, I bought their URLs. Oh, nice. I bought them, uh, probably four or five years ago. Yeah. You need to, you need to get Dan Cantor on here. He's the king of buying URLs. He has so many names. He's bought everything. He might eat. Well, there's a whole, he, there's a whole nother business and, and, and podcast right there. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, he's urlbuyer.com. <laughs> if you could buy urlbuyer.com. Now you're getting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about gear. Everybody's like going, oh, geez, shut up. Let's talk about gear. Um, so, man, you were naming some expensive stuff. Burrow Mothership, you got an HDX system. Um, you you put some money into gear. I do. I put a lot. Do you put a lot of money into do gear? You go, do you go into debt for it? Uh, occasionally. Not yeah. heavy debt, but you know, it's, it's business debt. It's not personal debt. Uh, and to me, there's a huge difference. Well, can you explain that? Um, cause most, most people I think would like, you know, Oh, I'll buy a borough mothership on my credit card. Yeah. Well, you buy a borough mothership on your credit card and then you're in personal debt. If you are running a business that is separate from you personally, even though the money is coming out of you, essentially it's, uh, you're not personally liable for it. The business is liable for it. So because of that, because of that, say, say you were to get into massive financial trouble. Well, the business could go bankrupt and it wouldn't affect you personally. Okay. So your business, are you, are you an LLC or are you a S corp? What are you? LLC. Okay. And how did you, how did you set your LLC up? Uh, My accountant was very good at helping with that. Also get an accountant. Mm-hmm. Talk to someone who is really good with money because we are, as as you can tell by the fact that I buy a lot of gear, I'm not very good with money personally. 
So having someone who I can talk to, and also my wife is extremely good with money. So having someone in my family that can actually do this kind of thing is pretty helpful. There's a little bit of a personal question. Do you ever get in, into conflicts uh, in your relationship over your business expenses? She never, she never judges anything with the business. If it's a piece of gear that I find to be necessary, and I was raised Catholic, so I feel guilty about anything that I'm doing wrong. Uh, I was too, but I, I don't. I don't feel guilty. I I always feel guilty. I still have it. East Coast Catholic is a little different, especially Irish Catholic. Um, oh yeah, it's it's a it's a different beast. Um, but she, you know, a, the way my expenses kind of break up from personal to business. Now that my even though my teaching schedule is part time, you know, it's that's my personal that's my personal money. To me, that's my money that goes into the home. I basically put everything into our joint account and everything that comes through the studio is the studios or mine, depending on how I break it up. So if I need personal money, that comes out of the, that comes out of the studio. Um, but also, you know, I take people out to business dinners all the time. Most of my phone calls are business phone calls. All of these things can get written off through the business. My phone is my phone is my business phone. My space all these all this space here is all business stuff. Um you you write off mileage because I have a long drive to work. So all of these things can be a part of um you know kind of dealing with whatever income or debt ceiling you might have. So, Interesting. You know, that's another good reason to talk to an accountant. If you pay for if you pay for Title or Spotify or any any streaming service, that can be a write off if you're an engineer because you that is part of your research. These things are important. If you have a laptop, you can write off a portion of your laptop because you're using it to record or edit whatever it is. Do you pay yourself a salary out of the business? I don't actually. Okay, I don't. The business is kind of taking care of itself. I occasionally take money out for myself. Right. Um, but you occasionally pay yourself. I occasionally pay myself. I mostly pay myself through my teaching income. That's that's a good idea. I like that. Yeah. I really I really break it up. And also I pay myself through gigs. Because I still play I still play bass. <laughs> um I don't play as regularly as I <coughs> used to. Uh, but whenever I, whenever I have a gig, that's some good pocket money to, you know, fill my gas tank, deal with any, you know, kind of personal expense that might pop up. But a lot of my, a lot of my stuff through home, any kind of household, you know, expense that comes along, that's, I've got that taken care of through a separate income stream. So that, that could actually be a good choice for a lot of, um, a lot of us where, you know, maybe there's, there's probably a large population of our listeners that maybe you already have a day job, mm -hmm. use that day job to fund your personal life, keep your, keep your recording income separate mm -hmm. and use that. You could use that to reinvest in your, your equipment and your, your build up your, as, as our English friends like to say, build up your, your, uh, your kit. You could also, I mean, I think if you're going to take personal money to buy gear, which I did for a long period of time, that you set a percentage aside, 10%, 20%, whatever it is. 
and say, that's, I can't spend any more than that. Then that piece mm-hmm. that you really want to buy, make sure that you have the money to buy it. Don't go into, don't go into debt or unless you know that like, you know, I'm $200 away from, you know, being able to buy this, then maybe you can put it on the credit card because the next month you'll have that extra $200 to pay off the, the entire thing. But don't go, don't go into debt for gear. It's the worst possible reason to go into debt, especially computer gear, because it depreciates so quickly. And also be willing to look at used stuff. Oh, eBay's a wonderful thing. And any local, you know, any local gear merchant will probably have some kind of, you know, used piece that comes through because some people trade gear back and forth all the time. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I wish was around that doesn't really seem to be as prevalent in places where we are is gear rental. I, w- I wish that there were, there was more of an option for that. I'm ac- I actually do it on occasion for a couple of engineers that I work with, you know, where the, they'll call up and be like, Hey, I, I need a, a pair of a design specific is for, you know, this two track gig that I'm recording or this, you know, I need like, I need, I want to borrow your Zener for a week, you know, then I'll, you know, we'll work out some kind of rental thing. You know, I think that that's uh, Dan Jasper talked about that in his podcast. He's a location sound recording guy, and he he talks about the uh, the importance of you know trying to rent from your peers because it keeps the money uh, focused on the community. You know, and if your community is not really big enough to support that, or you have unwilling participants, then. You know, I'll, I'll give a plug to our friend, uh, uh, Rolf Zweep over at, uh, Blackbird Rentals in Nashville. Um, you know, they rent stuff, they ship it all over and they have everything, everything. everything. Yeah. Did you, have you taken a tour over there, Matt? No, I, I haven't been to Nashville, um, in, I don't know how long I, no, I went out right after potluck last year and, and Mark was like, come on over. We'll, we'll give you a tour and everything. And I can't. That facility is just out of this world. It's words can't even describe. It's it's complete nirvana for any recording engineer. Just walking around those rooms and seeing the mic collection, and then just even going into the gear rental space that they have and seeing all the stuff that they have available. It's incredible yeah, for rental. Apart from the inventory of the studio, they have like they have RCA BA eleven A's there. I don't know if you know those, but those really old RCA pre's that just sound absolutely incredible. Um, there's those things were so good that when when Vance Powell heard about them, he went out and bought like three of them. He just heard them and said, "I need to own these." And then yeah, I think I think you and Vance have a similar gear addiction. Yeah, Vance Vance's uh, you know Vance's clients have a little more income than mine. But, yeah, uh, he he just got an, uh, an SSL. Yeah, I saw he he had Hans Zimmer's old board. Did he get rid of it, or did he outfit the SSL in a new room? What's what happened? I I, I don't know if he got rid of it, but I know he moved. I think he moved it out of his room and he moved the SSL in. Oh wow! Okay, what what model was it? A four thousand series or? I think it was. Yeah, that would make sense. I can't see Vance working on a J. There's no headroom to it. The old, the old E's and G's. You can, you can kind of push that two bus a little bit and get it grimy. And Vance is really good at grimy. Yes, he is. He's one of the best. Um, okay, good advice as far as gear. There, I like that. Um, let's let's. T- can we touch on retirement? <laughs> 
Um, do you put any money away for retirement? Let's just let me ask that. That, that if if I didn't if I wasn't teaching, I probably wouldn't. Um, I have an IRA because of because of the school. Um, other than that, I my wife always says you've got retirement sitting right in front of you every day because I've got oh, the gear. I've got a ton of gear. You know, I I'd I I don't want to be a naysayer, but you know, I kind of I sold some gear recently and I got to tell you man the the market's flooded. I know. I know. That's why I'm not counting on it. Um my uh my retirement plan has been marrying up. <laughs> <laughs> meeting, you know, meeting not only my favorite person in the world but someone who's also very business savvy and makes a living on her own. You know, we we were we were older when we got married. You know, I was 41 when I got married. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that just that thing alone, you know, changed my outlook on a lot of stuff. Um, but I was I was working on saving before, but when she came on board and you know she helped me put together a, a retirement account, it really helped a lot. Um, but I would say, like to anybody out there, you, there's there's a good chance you're not going to marry the best person in the world because I already did. So oh, <laughs> so you should do you should do the smart thing and. Think about taking 10% of whatever money you make each week and just putting it aside in something, even if it's just a basic savings account and it just sits there. I'm not a financial guru, so I'll just say this. I'm going to work on getting a couple people on the show that I think can talk about this. Um, And until that happens, I will recommend a a guy named, um, I I actually don't even know his name. I just know the blog guy that does a blog called Mr. Money Mustache. And he has a similar kind of recommends page uh, that I do. And uh, he he's a young guy that retired early because he figured out how to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and I, you know, I know many of us are like, I'm never going to retire. I'm going to record until they stop paying me or until I die. Well, that may be the case, but you know, many of us out there probably don't have the best diets on the wor- in, in, on the planet. <laughs> And we probably, you know, at some point you got to be prepared for the worst. Yeah. You know, it's fantasy to think that we're all going to look as good as Al Schmidt. At Did you see him get his his star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Yeah. Doesn't he look the same as he did when Graceland came out? <laughs> oh, my God. He looked great, man. I was like, I hope I look as good as that at that age. I don't even look that good now. I, mean, so. yeah, I, I wonder if the sacrifice is his voice. Because he honestly sounds like he smokes about three packs a day. Really? He's got that raspy voice with the New York accent and everything. Does he smoke? I don't know if he does at all. I don't know if he smokes at all. Because I met him and and posed with a picture with him and he didn't, I don't know. I don't remember smelling any smoke, but. Yeah, I don't know if he's, he just has a raspy voice. It could be yelling over musicians forever. Yeah. Well, he, he looks good for his age, but I, you know, we can't all plan on and, uh, financially doing as well as Al Schmidt has done, nor lasting, uh, you know, to, you know, a good ripe old age. So did you talk to Ryan Hewitt about this at all? About retirement? No, just about, about nutrition. Cause uh, Ryan's one of the healthiest engineers I've, I've ever known. Like he, he, I don't think we talked about nutrition. I think I talked to, um, I t- Beinhorn and I talked about it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's really in tune with He's really in tune with that kind of thing, with his body and how it behaves after 
certain hours. Yeah, we talked about uh, processed sugars, I think. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think uh, you're right about the diet thing. But, you know, from a personal standpoint, that's one thing that a good partner can bring. Is... A significant other can definitely bring perspective, especially when they're not in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, over the past few years, it's helped me to exercise regularly and to, you know, you know, throw a salad into the diet every once in a while when I'm not eating red meat. Those things can oh, be. Oh, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say throw a salad in the trash. No, no, <laughs> no. I've I've learned to incorporate vegetables. Yeah, they can be helpful. Um, but but you're right. Maintaining health is a big thing. If you're if you're talking about I'm gonna work until I die, make sure that you don't die for a long time by taking care of yourself. It's yeah, because nobody's making records that are dead. No, no, and very few people are making records that are you know, not able to get out of a chair. Yeah. I know you don't, you don't true. need to stand to make a record, but uh, you know, I was actually talking to Daryl Thorpe about that a little bit where he is talking about getting a standing desk desk to mix, hmm. you know, just so, just so you're not as sedentary the whole time. And I thought that was, that's that kind of interesting. I mean, I know a lot of people that have standing desks, but they're not audio people. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. I couldn't. Besides I bought, I bought this beautiful Herman Miller chair that, you know, has great lumbar support and I'm able to kind of yeah. sit back and relax and get comfortable. There, there's your excuse. Yeah. That's about an expensive chair. I can't give up my chair. That's, that's kind of an important thing. This is all good stuff, man. I, I, I'm glad we're touching on these topics. Um, yeah, we didn't get a whole lot into the audio side of it, but I think this other stuff is more important. The audio will come, you know, the, yeah. the, the audio will happen. It's, it's all the stuff around the audio that I feel is, uh, often overlooked and neglected because we do get myopic with, you know, our gear, we focus, and I love gear just as much as the next engineer, uh, believe me. But I find that the gear, if you support the other things, you get to benefit from the gear. Like if you support your health and deal with your money, it, you can relax and you can focus and really savor those moments of when you're recording and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm recording something brilliant right now. And I love what I'm doing. Yeah. I think that's really true. I mean, you know, if you ever have a repeat guest, we'll come back and talk mixing techniques or something, but I think this is. Oh dude, I totally got to have you back on. Say the word. I'd be psyched. All right. We can, we can, we'll, we'll do a follow-up. This, that'll be good because we'll be able to do it in the winter when I can't even leave my house to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Snow. (laughs) Sorry. You know, I like Boston, man, and and the outlying areas, but sorry, I can't deal with that snow thing you got there. You got to deal, you got to do something about that. Yeah. That's what they keep telling us. You know, it's, uh, (laughs) I mean, that's the problem, though. You know, it's either snow or you get a water ban. Yeah, and well, living yeah, on a coast true. is such a you know, it's it's got its it's it's got its massive benefits for me, but it's got some drawbacks. I mean, we're in a drought here in California, and we we don't water our grass. We don't if it's yellow, let it mellow. And oh, I love the uh, I, my la- I was out in July, and I I loved everyone calling the grass golden. That's was the phrase. Golden. It's not brown. Yeah. It's golden. We're the golden state. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. So it's the golden grass makes sense then. We're out of time. And uh, I appreciate you being on the show. And it's been a true pleasure. I And it's good to talk to you because I, I I miss seeing you at, at Potluck. And uh, since we didn't see each other this year, I believe we'll see each other next year if, if uh, the planets align. Yeah, if all holds up. By the way, everyone should go to Potluck. 
next year. Next year. It's yeah. uh, it's an amazing time. You get surrounded by a bunch of people in the subculture and uh, realize that you're not alone in the world when you're trapped in a room by yourself. There are other people doing the same thing and going through the same stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll have Craig on at some point. For as as we had Craig on to tell, I don't know if you heard that episode. He came on to talk, talk about why the potluck wasn't happening, but uh, we'll have him on as a regular guest as well. Fantastic! So that'll be awesome. Um, well, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to go uh, eat some lunch, and uh, I'll once I get the audio, I'll put this thing together, and uh, cool. yeah, I'll work on it later tonight. See you. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. All right, Sean McLaughlin on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to talk to Sean. Always a pleasure. That's all the time we have for today. Make sure uh, if you haven't done so, head on over to the uh, iTunes page and give us a nice review. And uh, once again, to give credit where credit is due, our music, of course, is by Cliff Truesdale. Our vocal intro there is by Chuck Smith. And our social media and additional audio support is by Cole Williams. And that's it. Enjoy your day. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.